Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his presentation, The Beginning of the Good News, a study on the Gospel of Mark, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, The Temple, Part 1, recorded in April 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. Uh, we now today, in chapters 11 and 12 of Mark, arrive at the destination. We go all the way back to the beginning of Mark, the first three verses, and we remember that Mark quoted those verses out of the Old Testament and all of the passages he refers to there all in some way end with a temple. Uh, if we take the Exodus twenty twenty three, 23, uh, be, uh, behold, I'm sending my messenger before you to, to guard you on the way to the place that I have prepared for you, that place is the promised land. But if one went along in the story through the books of Joshua and Judges and Samuel and finally Kings, you would see that one of the major climaxes of the uh, entrance of Israel into its land is the building of a temple right, in Jerusalem. That becomes the place par excellence that God has prepared for his people where they come to meet him. Uh, when we think of, se- of Second Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verse 3, uh, which is the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths, that is the prophet uh, summoning the exiles from Babylon to return to Mount Zion and to rebuild the temple that was destroyed. Um, and finally, in the book of Malachi, the temple has been rebuilt And the prophet is commanded to, or at least God speaks, I'm sending my messenger before me uh, to refine, to purify the temple and its priesthood so that they no longer do wrong and that they will not be judged negatively by me. So all aspects of Mark's story converge on the temple. Um, But beyond that reference at the very beginning of the Mark, we really haven't seen uh, a lot explicit in the narrative about the temple. So maybe we should begin by refreshing our memory about what the temple is or was. Uh, If you look at pictures of Jerusalem today, you see the great temple mount, the big platform on the eastern side of the city, uh, the platform where the temple once stood. It's now occupied uh, by by a mosque as well as a place of commemoration. Uh, The mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, is supposedly the place where Muhammad Uh, came on his night journey, God brought him to Jerusalem so that he might ascend into heaven and meet with him uh, and to meet all the other prophets. And that other dome of the rock, what's called the dome of the rock, that's, uh, according to tradition, where the place of sacrifice used to be in the temple. It's called the dome of the rock because in the middle of it is a rock, a big uh, flat rock about the size of two of these tables, which on the one hand is where the altar of the temple used to stand. Uh, And so that is where God reconciled himself to his people. And then even by tradition, this supposedly was the place where God commanded Abraham to offer his son to him. And so the effectiveness of Abraham's act of fear uh, or reverence to God makes all the sacrifice in in that place in the future uh, effective. 
So that's just a bit of you know contemporary topography. That's what we have there now. But that big platform is what the temple area uh, used to stand on. I'll just make a little diagram here. So I'm going to point, here's north, Jerusalem, sort of here. And here's the Temple Mount. You have the, it's actually more like a trapezoid. Uh, that's the Temple Mount, the platform. And in Mark's Gospel, um, there are two terms that are conventionally translated temple. Sometimes they're both translated temple, uh, unhelpfully, because Mark is talking about two separate things. When he uses the term temple in the proper sense, we might better say temple area, the sacred precinct, the whole area uh, that is surrounding the temple. And that's this. There's an actual building at the northern end, and that is called the sanctuary, the holy place. That is where sacrifices uh, take place, where the priests intercede for the people and so on. Now, the two terms that Mark uses for this, the, the, the sanctuary in Greek is naos for sanctuary, and then the temple area or compound is called the hieron. Uh, and I just call that the temple area. So the temple area is what you pass through in order to reach the place of sacrifice. Um, the temple then uh, is going to be, usually Mark is going to refer to the temple area and not to the sanctuary. So almost all the action in the next two chapters that we're looking at takes place in the temple area, but not in the, in the actual place of sacrifice, um, which has a bearing on its interpretation. But let's step back a bit. I'm going to actually erase this because we have to draw this all out here so that we see it. I actually have a diagram on the, uh, the handout that sort of gives you my arrangement or organization of these chapters. And what I want to do today is get a sense of how, again, how everything hangs together. Um, so we expect that Mark, as always, will tell us when part of the story begins and ends because he's going to repeat a story, or at least he will begin and end uh, a, a unit with the same kind of action. So the idea of a repeated story might be the two feeding stories, which are almost identical. We saw that back in Galilee. Uh, but there's also stories that sort of indicate that a development has taken place, right? The calling of the 12, the sending of the 12. That would be another set of bookends. Here in this section, what we have is Jesus' entrance into the temple, his first entrance. He goes in and out a couple times. And his final exit from the temple. So our basic bookends are entering the temple and leaving the temple. Uh, after he leaves the temple at the end of chapter 12, he never returns. So that is basically where everything happens is in these two chapters. The temple is the, the main setting. Now, of course, it takes him a little while to get into the temple because he has to march into Jerusalem itself. He doesn't actually march, he rides. And we all know what he rides upon. He rides upon a donkey. And there are various ways in which that has been interpreted. Uh, but the image of the king riding upon a donkey uh, into Jerusalem, that is an image of war. Um, it's, in a sense, also an image of peace because it's an image of the king who is returning victorious from battle. Right? So he's not making war right now, but he has won a war. And so he's returning triumphantly into his city. And in the, in the, the book of, of uh, Zechariah, which is where this biblical image comes from, of the king entering in on a donkey, uh, the idea is that he has 
defeated the enemies of Israel. He's returning to the city and he's going to defeat them again. He's going to definitively defeat them the next time. But the basic idea is the, the, that he who comes in the name of the Lord, as we, use, as we say that in our liturgy, that is the, the, the warrior king who is coming to defend God's place, the temple, the city. So he's coming to defend God's kingdom. That's the imagery. And, um, ha, and, and who would this be, uh, the king? Well, uh, in the, the Old Testament, the king is usually uh, David or a descendant of David. Now, that was a new theme we saw last time. The last thing that happened before Jesus gets to Jerusalem is he heals a man, a blind man, who calls him son of David. Right? So that sort of anticipates a theme of everything that Jesus does in these two chapters. We haven't been told he was a son of David up until now, but what do the people, if you remember from the story, what do the people hail him as? <laughs> or They sing a song, actually. They sing a song. And uh, David's name is in the song. So they see him entering and they are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's a human being representing God, God's uh, power, his kingdom. Uh, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. So David is a key element of our bookends. David. So to put it simply, Jesus enters Jerusalem. He enters the temple as the Davidic monarch, as the warrior king. Right? Now, David is mentioned once more in these two chapters at the very end, at our other bookend. But there it's with a kind of surprise. Now, when we get to the, the entrance, we have to remember that Jesus himself chose to enter this way. In fact, there's a long part in the story about how he orchestrates every aspect of this entrance. He tells his disciples to go to this town and you'll find a donkey there. Tell them, you know, the owner, you know, the, the, the master needs it. So he, he knows that there's a donkey here. He knows he's going to enter in on a donkey. He knows what that means and he knows how it'll be interpreted. He wants people to think this way. So he's, he's very consciously choreographing himself. He's shaping the image of who he is and what he's coming to do. So he's setting up an expectation. That's another way to put it. And David is the center of that expectation. He is going to be a Davidic king. Well, then he deflates the bubble at the end, very surprisingly, when he provokes a question. He, he's, throughout the, the, the chapter 12, he's constantly being asked questions by other people. At the end of his stint in the temple, he turns the tables and asks a question, rhetorical question. How can the scribes, he says, say that the Messiah is the son of David? And then he proceeds to interpret one of the Psalms, a Psalm attributed to David in the Old Testament, um, in which David, the ostensible author, refers to his Lord, not to God, but to someone else called his Lord. And Jesus interprets this psalm saying, well, if David's calling someone else Lord, and if that's the Messiah, then the Messiah certainly cannot be a son of David. Rather, the Messiah is David's Lord. Well, we don't need to, to um, um, distract ourselves for the moment with the details of this tangled interpretation, but to, to note that the story begins and ends with the figure of David. 
Jesus entering consciously as a Davidic figure, and then at the end saying, the Messiah is not the son of David. That's not the best way to understand the role and identity of the Messiah. Now, at some stage, that shouldn't surprise us, because uh, when Jesus was told who he was at the Jordan, the divine voice didn't say, you're the son of David. It says, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased, right? So David has never been part of the picture until now. But it makes sense that David should be an element of this whole story because, of course, when we're talking about the temple, even though this is not the original temple, this is the temple of the Davidic dynasty. If you go all the way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, David is walking around Jerusalem Um, admiring the palace that he built for himself and then noticing that God has only a small tent, a paltry tent to live in. That's the the tent that that houses the Ark of the Covenant. He says, well, if God's greater than me, why shouldn't he have a bigger palace than I do? So he has this sort of um, spontaneous uh, wish to honor God with a temple. And God says, thank you very much. In fact, for for offering me, this nice thing, I will do something for you. I will build you a dynasty. You'll build me a house, I'll build you a house, a household of kings. And when in the next book of the Bible, First Kings, Solomon, the son of David, builds and then dedicates this temple in a long speech uh, in chapter eight, I believe, of uh, First Kings, Solomon expounds upon the, the fact that the temple is the architectural sign that God has promised David an eternal dynasty, an unbroken chain of sovereignty over God's people. He says, because God brought me to the throne, that's proof uh, that God has kept his promise to David, and therefore my building this temple is a way of showing that we recognize that. So when we have David, David turning up in this sequence of stories about Jesus in the temple, it's not surprising temple and Davidic monarchy go together. These two institutions go together. And yet we've seen that we have a surprise waiting for us. Jesus presents himself as a Davidic king and then says, well, that's not the whole picture. In fact, if you're thinking that, maybe you're thinking wrong. In fact, he goes on at the end of the story in chapter 12 when he says, why did the scribes say this? Um, The Messiah is not a son of David. Um, He then says, watch out for those scribes. They're bad people. They're really nasty people. They're, uh, they're hypocrites. You know, they're, they, uh, they devour widows' houses, so somehow they are taking advantage of other people. They're not good people. In other words, he does exactly what would, um, what would cause him to fail a philosophy exam. He engages in an ad hominem argument. The scribes say the Messiah is the son of David, and the scribes are rotten people, so you shouldn't believe them. Uh, And that's how the story ends, more or less. We have this story in the end about this poor widow, maybe one who was victimized by a scribe, come in and drop her last penny into the temple treasury, and he he admires her for having given her whole life, all her livelihood into the temple, unlike those scribes. So the scribes get sort of an unfair bashing because because they don't actually turn up as enemies of Jesus in in these stories. But in any case, it's very clear that Mark in dealing with the temple, which is the object, uh, again, the architectural sign of God's kingdom, any approach of God's kingdom, the kingdom of God has drawn near, has to deal with the temple. 
Um, it's not surprising he's going to deal with David, but uh, Jesus is a Messiah who is somehow like and not like David. So we're back in the misunderstanding theme here. So what is it about David, about the archetype of David, the Davidic ruler, that doesn't fit Jesus? In other words, what's the surprise supposed to be? Well, to, to answer that question, we have to see what happens in between, right? So let's try to map this out. On my outline, we go right to the center of the story. We have uh, temple leaders. Uh, what did I have here? They, are, uh, they react to something Jesus does. And what he does is to mess up the temple area. And then there's a reaction to that. And the upshot of the reaction is that the authority of the temple leaders is called into question. The legitimacy of the temple leaders is called into question. Um, that too should not surprise us because the legitimacy of other leaders of Israel have been, has been called into question ever since we started the story. Right? In the Galilee section, Herod and the Herodians uh, were called into question as leaders. And here in Jerusalem, the leaders of Jerusalem are called into question as those who are not quite ready to accept this change in sovereignty, this, uh, this displacement of their own authority by this upstart from Galilee who's coming in. So it's this reaction to what Jesus does that causes Jesus then to tell a parable. Right? At the center of, of our temple section, we have a parable, the other major parable in Mark's gospel. The first one was the parable of the sowers, which was about reactions to the good news, the word that Jesus was proclaiming. Now, we have a reaction to Jesus's temple action, and he uses the imagery of a vineyard owner, uh, a landowner who, le who lets his land out to tenants, and the tenants refuse to pay, their, pay what they owe to the, the owner of the land. They, they refuse to yield however much of the crop they're supposed to hand over to him. And more than resisting payment, they actually abuse or murder all of the people that the owner sends to collect. And so at the end, it says the owner sends his beloved son. Surely they'll respect him, says the owner. But they kill the beloved son, thinking that they will gain the inheritance. They will take possession of this as their own. And Jesus ends the parable by saying, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And the answer, which he answers himself, is he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And out of that then comes the remark of the narrator, Mark, saying, uh, on account of this, they wanted to get rid of Jesus, but they were afraid of the crowds. They couldn't seize him openly because the crowds were in favor of what Jesus was doing and saying. And so here we have the climax of the story. What Jesus does in the temple causes or provokes the leaders of the temple to try to do away with him. And they themselves are trapped in this role by the parable that he has spoken against them. And then, since they can't take him openly, they try to take him by deception. Uh, by, they try to trap him in words, as Mark puts it. And so they ask him all these questions. And actually, they only really ask him one question, one question that's really provocative. Uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's an issue of sovereignty, is it not? Right? To whom do we owe allegiance? To whom do we owe tribute? And of course, we know the story. We know how Jesus answers the question. Who's doing the trapping? 
It says the temple leaders didn't do it themselves. They sent people to him. And who did they send to him? They sent some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Well, guess who they were? Back in chapter 3, they were the two groups that first banded together to try to get rid of Jesus, right? When he started doing what he did and throwing his authority around the way he did, they felt threatened and they sought to destroy him. Beware the leaven of Herod and the leaven of the Pharisees, Jesus said to his disciples back in chapter 7 or chapter 8, rather. Um, They need to go. So they are, Jesus has pretty much alienated them, provoked them. Uh, They are ready to get rid of him. So they appear again in the narrative and they try to trap him on this question. Of course, the Romans are ruling Judea at this time. They're not ruling Galilee. They're ruling Judea. They had been since since, uh, a little after the time of Jesus's birth. And uh, this, of course, would be a provocative question and a natural question. If you enter Jerusalem as the warrior king who's going to liberate Jerusalem from the nations, well, the nations, we already know, the nation that's ruling Israel is the Romans. So obviously, Jesus is setting himself up to be asked this question, right? Should we comply with the Romans or should we not? You know, if you're the messianic king who's going to liberate us, say so. Uh, So they're trying to trap him in this. Well, the answer is, uh, you know, people have thought about what the meaning of the answer is. Give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar. Give back to God the things that are God's. Um, when he shows, uh, when he asks them what's on the, the coin, right? It's a denarius, which is a Roman coin, and there is an image and an inscription that says Caesar on it. So whose image and inscription is this? Well, give back to Caesar Caesar's things and give back to God God's things. But what does that mean? Well, you could infer perhaps that you give this coin back to Caesar because it has his name on it, maybe. So maybe he's saying you can pay tribute to Caesar, just as a way of getting them off, uh, off his back without actually saying so. But what belongs to God? What belongs to God? If, if these coins belong to Caesar, then what belongs to God? Everything. Good answer. In fact, that's the very answer Jesus himself gives right in this section. After several questions, he is, uh, uh, he is approached by a scribe, the only nice scribe in the story, who appears to admire him genuinely because he thinks that Jesus speaks truthfully. And he says, what's the greatest commandment? And of course, we know how Jesus answers. He answers by quoting the book of Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what God is owed, everything. Um, and that's actually how all of these questions hang together in the story. Um, what belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar, to the emperor, which is an issue of sovereignty, again, right? If we're talking about the kingdom of God, well, what do we owe our sovereign? If we're talking about the kingdom of Caesar, well, what do we owe Caesar? Um, now, again, there's a, it, it's kind of a double, double-edged sword, this question, because Jesus makes a point that these uh, Pharisees and Herodians are carrying a blasphemous image, <laughs> an image, a graven image in God's own temple area, right? Which is not a good thing. In fact, remember when Jesus in the, we'll talk about the temple action a little later, when Jesus turns things over and prevents the money changers from exchanging currency, the reason why there are money changers there is so that only coins that have no inappropriate images are used for offering donations for the support and upkeep of the temple, There was a very specific currency 
that was used specifically for this purpose uh, that would have been devoid of such blasphemous images. Um, so someone was carrying around a bad coin, and so the very fact that he provokes them to ask the question, whose image is this, is a way of saying, what are you doing carrying an image of another god in God's temple? It's provocative. It's also provocative because it may go back to this question of what do we owe God? Well, you said we owe God everything. Why do we owe God everything? Why do you think we owe God everything? Because he, he created us. How did he create us? In his image. Guess what Jesus just drew attention to? The image of Caesar. Well, if this coin belongs to Caesar because it bears his image, we owe everything to God because we bear God's image. See, there's all these different layers of meaning under what seems to be an innocuous answer, right? The answer is fighting words, actually. And the, 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 the combative nature of the answer Jesus gives is unpacked as we raise the question, then, well, what belongs to God and why? Well, what happens between asking the question about tribute and then the scribe asking what's the greatest commandment? Well, you have a little... Uh, interlude of another group who shows up out of nowhere called the Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, uh, we're told. Uh, so it was a Jewish sect, minority sect at that time, who did not believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead, which they could be forgiven for, because that's quite a recent belief, only about a century and a half old at that point. Uh, but they don't believe this. Um, and so they asked Jesus a silly question about, you know, if a woman marries seven husbands, which, in the resurrection, which, which, uh, who, uh, whose, whose wife will, will she be? Um, Jesus says, well, it doesn't matter because in the resurrection, when people are raised from the dead at the end of time, uh, they will be like angels in heaven. They will neither marry nor, give it, nor be given in marriage. Um, that has a whole other sort of subplot to it. But the basic point is that Jesus argues that God raises the dead. God is a God of the living, not of the dead, he says. Um, so it's not just... What do we owe God? Because we were made in God's image. It's also why should we give God our whole lives? Well, God raises the dead back to life. He honors his relationship to those who honor him. Due to time constraints, Today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.